Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Full of Energy, an AE podcast, where we talk about workforce development, energy hot topics, and energy policy. I'm your host, Laurie Beth Nix. Today, we're talking to John Pushkar and Albert Williams about industrial energy. Albert is a freelance independent energy engineer who has instructed over 180 training courses on energy management, energy auditing, pump, and compressed air systems. He has 18 years of experience and has conducted over 220 energy audits, including 90 compressed air audits, and has traveled and worked in over 40 countries. He also contributed to the C in developing the CEM, CEA, and was the lead developer in globalizing the CIEP, which is the Certified Industrial Energy Professional, and 20 other energy training courses. He's a training instructor for AEE, UNIDO, EPA, Econoller, and a few other organizations in the Middle East, the Balkans, Denmark, South Asia, and most recently, the World Bank. Albert's also the author of the Industrial Energy Systems Handbook and has won various international engineering awards. He holds four UNIDO qualifications, nine AEE certifications, and serves on the Global Guidance Committee of AEE and is an AEE Lifetime member. John Puskar also helped develop the CIEP when it was first created and is the president of the Prescient Technical Services in Cleveland, Ohio. He's been a licensed mechanical engineer for more than 35 years and has conducted more than 200 energy audits throughout his career with a focus on industrial facilities, including chemical plants, refineries, auto plants, and steel plants. Mr. Pushkar is a former corporate energy systems engineer and has also directed many implementation projects as a licensed contractor. Mr. Pushkar's perspective is unique, very practical, and has a focus on operations and real-world solutions. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it by asking Albert, what is industrial energy? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Laurie. Well, that's a big question. I think there's, there's quite a lot of things about industrial energy. Well, you know, you go to different plants and these plants are massive and there's such a lot of different kinds of equipment. So it's, it's a, little, a little bit difficult to, to encompass it in a, in a small explanation, but it's basically anything that consumes energy. So the focus a lot of time is on, um, you know, my personal perspective is on steam systems, looking at everything from the steam uh, generating uh, equipment like the boilers, the distribution systems, the end users, it's the compressed air users, it's all kinds of fans and pumps, it's the refrigeration systems, uh, anything, even lights, uh, comfort cooling, process cooling, there's really hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of equipment. And if you go to different facilities in different sectors, it's also quite vastly different. I mean, it's a main plant, has got a lot of unique equipment that you won't find necessarily on a steel plant or on a petrochemical plant uh, or on a, a oil facility or in a power generation facility. So it's really, it's really massive, I think. And that makes it very overwhelming in the first sense. Um, and it's something that you really can't, you know, you can spend a few hundred lifetimes trying to master the topic, I think. So it's a very deep subject. Uh, very wide and yeah lots of opportunities as well because lots of energy is being wasted and sometimes unknowingly yeah, and laurie i think i can add to that in my mind it kind of breaks down kind of two ways 
it it's process industries, which I call kind of chemicals, refining, paper, and it's manufacturing, auto plants, um, assembling things, making things. I kind of generally characterize it as almost anything other than what I would call traditional office space. And once you get into the industrial energy sector and you start analyzing, whether it be a process plant or a manufacturing plant, I think it then further breaks down into three distinct components. And this is the way I like to kind of analyze industrial energy. I think of it as there's always some kind of little administrative type of office facility associated with any manufacturing or process plant. And that kind of can be treated like traditional commercial energy audit type of buildings. Then there's what I call the utilities part, which is usually some central utilities plant where there's a central steam boiler facility, compressed air, cooling water. And then there's what I call the true process area, which as Albert said, it's it's distinct, it's proprietary. Um, oftentimes, they may not want you to even be involved with it. If you do get near it and touch it, there'll be lots of eyes there focused because it's frankly the bread and butter and the heart and soul of whatever that industrial facility is making. It's how they all feed their families and pay their bills. And we'll talk more about that as we go along, but that's kind of how I look at industrial energy. Mm. So with how broad industrial energy seems to be, do you have context, John, on the scale of industrial energy consumption worldwide? And how does that compare to the buildings and transport sectors? Yeah, so according to the Energy Information Administration, industrial energy use is the largest single segment of energy use in the U.S., uh, data might be a little dated, but I have it as about 32 quadrillion BTUs. To put it into context, that's about 20% more than the transportation segment, which is about 26. Then comes residential 21, and in last place is commercial. It's clear as we move forward that to make a big difference in the energy world, we've really got to provide a heavy focus on industrial energy opportunities. And as I just stated, that's that's going to mean working real hard on not really the admin portions of industrial facilities, but really focusing on the central utility plants and the true process areas that are somewhat, again, proprietary, uh, somewhat difficult, somewhat unique. But that's where we're going to have to shift our focus in the future. Albert, what does industrial energy look like in South Africa? Mm, well, I don't know, really. Uh, look, South Africa is quite an in, uh, um, industrial intensive country. We've got lots of mines. You know, we are world famous for our gold mines, especially um, our neighboring countries. And as well as South Africa, there's some diamond mining happening. Uh, we do lots of platinum coal mining. Uh, also, a lot of uh, car manufacturing facilities. A lot of the major suppliers are assembling uh, the, the automotives in South Africa. A lot of cement industries, everything that you find in normal places. We've got a big petrochemical plant in, in Cecil. So we are quite strong in the industrial focus. And that's where I started most of my career's work was in the mining sector. 
But I actually, just before we came onto the podcast, I looked at South Africa's industry and it's relatively small in comparison with the world. I think it's less than 1% of what's happening worldwide. But um, yeah, as Jonas said, it's it's quite it's quite heavy. You know, it's it's a very big percentage worldwide. You know, I did a quick calculation and I got some nice websites and, and nice Sankey diagrams from the IEA. And basically, it looked to me that if you look at the world energy consumption, if I convert that to money, and if you pay 15 US cents per kilowatt hour, it, it comes out at about 17 trillion dollars that's consumed worldwide for for all energy. And if you look at industry, you're looking at about five trillion dollars uh, going annually towards uh, cons- uh, you know paying for energy for for industry. So five trillion dollars is quite quite a lot of money, and there's some attractive savings there. Uh, I think it was also the IEA that made a a guesstimate, and they said that twenty six percent can be saved if you walk into the average industrial facility. Twenty six percent. So for me, it's a little bit conservative <laughs> based on on my experience. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But if I just said five trillion dollars goes to industry, if you can save twenty six percent of that, it means one point three trillion dollars are lying around waiting to be saved by industry professionals. Okay. And just as a last point, I also added here: if you look at look at the consumption until twenty forty, it will be one hundred and forty three trillion dollars. So from now until twenty forty, there is thirty seven trillion dollars that can be saved. So that's available for all of us energy professionals to just go in there to find and implement. Yeah, so I, we- I think I also got some some wide varying data. If you look at industry, I think that's how how it is categorized, because so, sometimes in industry they include power generation as industry. Yeah. You know, so I think uh, the the where the lines are drawn is sometimes a bit sketchy because you get wide varying data on this. So I just looked at what the IEA's Sankey diagrams classified as uh, industry, transport, commercial. And that's where I got I and, got mine from. And I guess it depends on what hurdle rate someone someone's willing to accept. Yeah, and, sure. And, sure. In in my opinion, from my experience in industrial projects, it's a much shorter hurdle rate. But quite frankly, you know, if if you're working on a commercial office building, for example, it, in the past, before global real estate collapsed, um people would accept a long payback because it's just a building. It'll be there. In the industrial world, what I find is there's lots of competing opportunities for how they could spend excess capital. And there's a risk premium based on these investments because they don't know what the future demand for the product's going to be. You know, if a plant's going to stay open or closed, so they like really short, you know, six months to a year paybacks. That's been my experience. And, no, I, and, I, sure. and I, it would seem very difficult to find 25% of someone's um, energy budget that could be saved with a six month to one year payback. That's that's just my perspective. Yeah, when I, you know, in South Africa, when, when I started working, you know, everybody's talking about two year paybacks. Uh, some companies in Africa, they don't even talk to you if you don't give them a one-year payback. 
And when exactly. I went to my first, when I went to my first AE World Conference uh, in 2017, when I spoke to the the average person there, uh, I found the USA uh, engineers are quite HVAC focused or quite building focused. And the seminars I attended, the guys are talking about five years, seven year, eight year payback, and I'm sitting here like, what? You'll never succeed with that, those paybacks in South Africa. Um, but yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. The percentages, uh, it, it depends definitely on the size of the plant. If I look at these large percentages, that's a lot of time when I'm looking at an energy system specifically, perhaps not the entire plant, but if you look at a pump system or a, in my experience, a compressed air system, then you go to the 20%, 30% savings uh, quite rapidly. Sure, sure. And I and I think you'd agree that it, in all of these facilities, it's a portfolio of opportunities. Some of them will be 25%, some might be a little more, but then there'll be some little guys that maybe, you know, a much longer payback. And, and I guess, will the average industrial facility accept you blending this all together or will they just want to pick the most lucrative ones and run with that? I, I, I don't know. Depends on, I guess, who it is. As a follow-up question, what is the estimated total, total global value of cost-effective energy savings in industry that is available? So, Lori, my perspective on that is that there's three sub-segments within industrial energy, and I think you got to look at them uniquely. So, in, in the admin building type area, it's almost negligible. Let's call that 5% of the 32 quadrillion. Then you've got the utilities portion and the true process portions. Uh, there'll be more savings in the utilities area. It's somewhat common technologies. They're well vetted. Uh, in the true process areas, you're, you're probably only going to see about a 10% savings there because I will tell you, it takes a long time to get those vetted. Um, an example is Cleveland Cliffs, one of the world's largest steel producers, just introduced hydrogen into a blast furnace. They're still gathering data about that. It takes a long time to vet these things, and there's a lot of data collection, and there aren't a whole lot of um, common uh, true processes out there. People don't share a lot of information on the development of those technologies because, frankly, it's very competitive. So I kind of look at the opportunity as being somewhat conservatively about 15% of the 32 quadrillion overall. And if you put a value of, say, $8 a million BTUs on that, I see that worth being about $256 billion U.S. dollars overall. As, as a somewhat conservative opportunity for savings on an annual basis. So John, in your own experience or in specific projects that you've been involved with, what are the size and business case of a typical opportunity that you've seen? So this is really client and project specific. It depends on whether you're working for a specific plant site or piloting a true process change that's gonna be applied over a number of facilities. But most of my experience has been working with boilers, process ovens, thermal type processes. In these cases, the opportunities have been hundreds of thousands of dollars per site to a couple of million dollars at a relatively 
large site. Um, so again, it depends on, on whether you're considering that these can be leveraged maybe to a dozen or more plants. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I think if you're going to be looking at industrial opportunities, you have to expand your mindset far beyond the economic value of what you're doing. Uh, as we discussed earlier, some of these are a little tough to sell. In a typical industrial context, the funds that are available are competing with many different groups across the country, across the company, excuse, excuse me, including shareholders that need dividends, maybe, um, raises or bonuses to people that work there, stay in business items, safety items, and then there might be something left over for energy. So you're competing with all that. So I try to outline not only energy savings, dollars, and benefits, but I try to also frame safety improvements, reliability improvements, environmental improvements, and, and the, the life extension of the assets that I'm working with. I think this helps to kind of put a better spin on things besides the fact that we're just saving energy. And oftentimes it takes us in the profession to develop these other components of value and present them to our clients for them to fully understand the opportunity. Yes, and if I, if I can add to that, you know, Eric Woodruff is doing has done some good work there on the non-utility benefits, and I know there's some stuff on the CM uh, in that, and all the additional, I think it's like 33% or something that you add, uh, he quantified it, the, the non-utility benefits in terms of operational improvements and maintenance improvements uh, on top of the energy savings. But um, if, if I can, Laurie, if I can maybe give you some examples of uh, energy systems projects that I was involved with. So uh, I did a lot of work on, on compressed air systems specifically, right? So we, we, we ring fence the compressed air system out of the industry. And I did a study on this. I did some research or some, uh, I, I wrote up my findings and I actually submitted it to, to talk at the AE World Conference. Hopefully I can elaborate a bit on that in the conference in October. But I looked at about 80 compressed air systems and I did these audits myself and detailed audits with, with measurements and proper quantifications. So from this 80 sites, uh, I identified about 35% of the consumption uh, in the compressed air as being feasible for savings. So that means like a payback of, of, of two years at least. So my return on investment is above 100%, 123%. So it's a less than one year payback to get a 35% saving on compressed air specifically. And I looked at different areas of opportunity and typically leakage is a large area of saving, but I found that centralized control of the compressors were the largest opportunity there. And I can speak a bit more on that uh, at a later stage. So that's on compressed air systems. Um, we did in the last two years in Egypt, we did pump systems. We looked at 14 pump systems across the whole of Egypt, across various industries. And it was a whole group of trainees that were involved, about 40 people. And on average in this 14 sites, 
we identified 40% savings with a return on investment of 152%. So also like a six month, uh, no, like an eight month payback for that. So very attractive on that. And then the last one I just want to mention is uh, I was involved in Pakistan in 50 industrial sites across Pakistan. And it was a lot of auditing teams. It's a very, very big program. Uh, we looked at 5,300 gigawatt hours of sites. And what was implemented, the actual verified savings across all of these projects, uh, we identified savings. Okay, it's only 8.1% of savings, but it's 428 gigawatt hours per year that was saved. So it's 17 million US dollars, basically, that was saved, which is almost the equivalent of 1 million Pakistani people per year in the amount of energy that they have been saved. So yes, very, very attractive projects. And uh, we are quite uh, enthusiastic about it. What do you see ahead as some emerging trends in the industrial energy conservation, Albert? Um, Laurie, I think, you know, I saw John's presentation last year. He's really the expert in all these uh, latest gimmicks and all these uh, smart devices and things. And it's really interesting. Uh, I think John can elaborate on that a bit. From my side, I can just add that, you know, if I, if I look at technologies, yes, they make an impact. And, you know, a lot of time people are fighting, you know, this new technology and this manufacturer against that one. And... Uh, you can save maybe 1% on this brand or 2% on that technology. At the end of the day, uh, I think the largest savings is at the demand side. You know, just switch the thing off or change the set point. Sometimes you can you can achieve massive savings, you know, your 10%, 20% savings on that. So I'm not saying technology is not, not required, but uh, the prioritization of opportunities uh, should be adhered to. So rather look at your, you know, a cut off your bleeding limb and then, you know, stop the stop the waste, the massive amount of waste that you see in, in all types of industries. And then the few percentage points on these slight technology improvements uh, can be looked at. But but no, I know John has got some really exciting stuff and I, th I think he's going to be more equipped to answer that question. Well, yeah, I, I support kind of where you were headed with that. Um, I see lots of opportunities in controls and digitization and AI moving into places you would not expect it, like remote monitoring of processes and data collection allows us to all make much better decisions about how we use energy. I see monitoring of things like, you know, real-time combustion efficiency monitoring becoming much less expensive optimizing true processes, um, managing power production and, and real-time rate benefits. That's all gonna come out of the controls and AI worlds. But kind of maybe where, where Albert was going is, I also see a lot of growing pains with some of these technologies. There's lots of competing messages. There's data overload. There's a lack of service and support for many of these technologies. Um, so those are kind of limiting factors, and they're going to be there. I also see much more exotic burner technologies arriving. Uh, the proliferation of the use of variable frequency drives in burners, lots more heat transfer surface in boilers, 
In fact, condensing boilers are now somewhat commonplace and direct contact water heating is becoming uh, an everyday thing. And there's also becoming a lot more open-mindedness about fuel sources. So I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, the rock and roll capital of the world. And there was once a, a Doobie Brothers album called What Were Once Vices Are Now Habits. So what were once vices like landfill gases, bioenergy, are being very much accepted today. Now they're a very commonplace, almost habitual thing for many users. So um, those are some of the things I see coming at us in the future. John, what do you think are some of the most important issues when conducting an industrial plant energy audit? So it depends on whether it's a public company or a private company and its size. It also depends on whether or not it's a regulated industry. So in the simplest of cases, if it's a smaller privately held company, and let me just call that up to $100 million in sales, they, they'll fund anything for any reason. It's up to the owner. Uh, they could like the color of a boiler and decide uh, it would look pretty in the plant and put it in. Doesn't have to make economic sense because they're not accountable to anyone but themselves. But in larger privately held companies or in publicly held companies, there's, of course, a, a very strict profit objective. There are short and long-term plans. There are strategic businesses they want to support and some they don't. There's internal hurdle rates. And as I mentioned before, many people competing for funds. So um, there's going to be a risk premium applied to what you say the cost is going to be and the savings are going to be. Um, you got to remember, corporate treasurers, comptrollers, they can get 5% or more on their funds with no risk at all. And now you come in and you've got a 33% opportunity, you say. You say it's a three-year simple payback. But they got to look at things like, what are the fuel price risks? What's the market forecast for the product that's made at that plant? What's the possibility the plant will be sold or put out of service? There's lots of factors. So again, as I mentioned, you got to look at all the components of value. And then if you talk about a regulated entity like a utility or a hospital, there's not only all of the issues I just discussed, but they might have to go, for example, to a public utility commission or to a, a hospital certification organization and get approvals for what you want to do. That took could take months or years to get approved. So... Um, the other thing, and I've talked about it much throughout this podcast, is this whole issue with the true process parts of the operations. Again, I can't overstate it. These are often unique, proprietary, um, oftentimes look very simple on the surface, but there's oftentimes a lot more going on behind the scenes. So your idea, as straightforward as it might seem, is going to be looked at skeptically. It's probably going to be piloted first. Uh, there'll be many people analyzing it because you are, again, messing with the very heart and soul of what they do. And let me give you an example. So I was working at an auto assembly plant once, and 
you should know that just simple anecdotal math on the back of a napkin told me, tells me that typical auto assembly plant makes about $10 million a day worth of vehicles. We were trying to do a project once, a low cost, no cost, where we were going to try to reduce the compressed air pressure in the plant from 105 to just 100. A five pound difference, right? Albert, you might agree. Gee whiz. How could that matter, right? So um, turned out the air wrenches used on the assembly lines only required 90 pounds pressure. We thought, great, 100 to 90, still plenty of room. What we didn't realize, and we found out through testing and piloting, is that the way the piping system was configured, there were some times at the, of the day, depending on what was in use, like air hoists and other things, that if you ran it at 100, you got down to 85, and you didn't torque certain fasteners effectively. There are certain factors certain fasteners on an automobile on the steering system that are monitored and audited by the National Highway Transportation Safety Board. And if it's discovered that you didn't tighten those to the right torque level, those vehicles have to be recalled. So there you go. You're talking to people about, hey, simple little thing. I want to mess with your true process. Let's lower the air pressure by five pounds won't cost you anything. And that simple little thing could have made for the recall of thousands of vehicles and public embarrassment and millions of dollars in cost. You'd have never recovered that from the energy savings. So again, um, getting to the true process part of industry is where there's a lot of savings. Expect that to be difficult. Tread very carefully in that area but there are big rewards. Yeah, I think uh, that's very true. Um, process engineers or, or energy auditors that has got a process background or has been in plants and worked as a process engineer has got a little bit of advantage. Yes. So when we do audits, we spend such a lot of time in the beginning just trying to understand the process. And you, you know, you, you're there for a few days and you're trying to do someone's work from from 30 years so you must you must tread very carefully and understand how everything fits together because if you change something something else is going to break and murphy's law says something else is going to break um and what i can also add there is you know you a lot of time when you look at the industrial facility uh, as okay I, I work as a consultant so i come from the outside and a lot of times you will you will look at a system in a, a ring fence term. So if, if you don't have a proper understanding of everything, you may be limited to the amount of savings that you can identify. You know, I, I do a lot of uh, vetting or reading of audit reports, and I can see that this audit report was written by an electrical engineer, for instance, because they will always talk about uh, motor efficiency, retrofits, a variable speed drive, harmonic filters, they forget about all the mechanical things. And when I see a report from a mechanical engineer, I can see this guy doesn't look at anything uh, electrical focused. So a lot of time, you know, us as, you know, focused engineers are looking, we, we, we may be limited to our expertise because that's just our life is, you don't, you cannot know everything about everything. 
So it's a, a good, if you can travel in teams, perhaps with a wide skill of diversity or, or different skill sets so that you can complement each other. And, and, you know, that's coming ju just back to training, AE training courses, uh, going into more detail, uh, attending these things quite regularly, do various types of training courses just to broaden your knowledge so that if you go to a facility that you, you know, you can just ask more intelligent questions and then you can have sort of a, a wider view of of everything. Because a lot of, lot of time there's missed opportunities. We may focus too narrowly while a wide a wide approach may be necessary in some cases. Sorry. Uh, Albert, I loved what you said about the fact that we're typically only there for a few days and we're trying to make judgment calls about people who live there and been operating these things for 30 or 40 years. And what I'd like to tell people is, look, if you really want us to do really good work for you, don't make us be detectives. We don't want to be there to be detectives. Please open up your hearts, your brains. Tell us what's worked in the past, what's not worked in the past. Share information with us. Um, it is very challenging to just be there for a few days and really understand it all. So um, again, uh, we could get a lot further with you and provide more value if you're very cooperative and open with us. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah. Laurie, if I can just, you know, uh, just add something in terms of funding of, of energy projects and what makes it a challenge to get projects implemented. So that's a that's an age-old question that we were always struggling with and we are still struggling and I'm not sure if it's going to be solved ever, but um, yeah, we all the stuff that John just mentioned in terms of risk, financial risk, operational risk, uh, getting money. There's always a competition for money. Uh, you know, energy is not always a KPI, but rather um, production enhancement or improvement or, or selling more stuff is going to be a KPI rather than energy. But but something else I can can add there. You know, sometimes we look at the barriers, but. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Abram, he made a very good point and he said, let's look at everything that's working successfully and we, we answer the opposite of that question. So let's look at the ISO 40001 and all the components in the standard. And if you apply these components, that will sort of mention to you what is the challenges and how it can be solved. Like, for instance, management commitment. You know, one of the biggest things is management is not committed. There's no policy and targets in place, and then the project fails, falls flat and we can't get the things implemented. The communication from management is not correct. So people don't are not aware, they are not involved, they, they have the wrong attitude, and the project is, does not get implemented. Um, you must get an energy champion on the ground, someone that drives the process, someone that's got an energy team behind him with different skill sets. You know, all of these things that's in the standard and uh, you know that's also a podcast or a training course on its own, um, you know, documentation, uh, procurement, uh, baseline, uh, doing measurement verification, you know, getting incentives or rewards for, for successful implementation of the projects. I think uh, all of those steps in the standard is a answer to all the barriers that we see so regularly. And, you know, we are just struggling immensely to get projects implemented because of all of these reasons. 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to add to that, that um, the technologies that we're dealing with are somewhat unique. Remember that in the entire commercial sector, it, and by that I mean office buildings, for example, which is commonly associated with what people think energy audits are all about. You know, there's a few standard things. Would you not agree, Albert? I mean, it's it's some HVAC things, some motors. I hate to simplify it that much, but it we're not splitting the atom there. That stuff's been well vetted and around forever. Um, and and here, to get things implemented, they have to be looked at from a much deeper level. You know, in in the office commercial arena, we're thinking about primarily ASHRAE standards and codes, you know, for fresh air requirements, things like that. When you move into the industrial arena, you have to make sure that, you know, it could be ASME pressure vessel codes, it could be NFPA, Fire Protection Association codes and standards. There's a whole lot more vetting that has to happen because I want to remind you about this. In the traditional commercial office building sector, if you mess up a project, wow, I better buy like lemonade for everybody because it's probably too hot for a few days until we fix things. In the industrial energy sector, if we mess up on things, we could kill people very easily or we could put them permanently out of business. So the stakes are much higher. Um, you know, something else that can get projects, uh, you know, it's difficult to get them implemented. Sometimes the guys are thinking, you know, this is too good to be true. Uh, a lot of time, energy efficiency projects uh, can be quite attractive. And that comes just back to awareness and, and education or you know, just uh, understanding the, the things a little bit better uh, can can solve that too good to be true thing. People think there's a catch and it can't be like that, but oftentimes there can be quite a attractive saving. But as John is saying, you know, uh, things are influencing each other. You must be careful, uh, especially if you're going into implementation. There is quite a risk. There can be quite a big risk uh, if you're going into uh, process changes. And things like that. I think those are all really good points. And what I hear out of that is that there's a big amount of preparation that you should do and also upskilling, um, which brings me to my last question, which is, have you seen AEE training courses on industrial energy efficiency impact the lives of people or their careers or their communities? Okay, yeah, Laurie, for sure. I think every training course I do, I get you know some some uh, positive feedback or some enthusiasm during the tea breaks. Uh, there's there's a lot of examples. You know, people will come to me sometimes, even in on the first day in the first tea time. Um, I've had people come to me and say, "Listen, I I I'm thinking after this session about a career change." <laughs> you know. Uh, because they get enthusiastic as, as soon as they, they move out of this component focus mindset. Uh, you know, you, we have a lot of times uh, people with PhDs and masters that works on motors, for instance, to, to make it simple. And they look at a motor and the technology and 
you know, your your reduction in core losses and stator losses, uh, you know, your better winding insulation and, and these small things, but they they are so focused on the motor they they don't take a step back and look at the the pump that it's driving and the inlet conditions of the pump and that the pipes are too small or blocked or they're running through a closed valve all these years. So just uh, taking a more more realistic, more big overview, uh, guys get quite excited attending these training courses, and you know I've seen some some good enthusiasm coming from that. Uh, yeah, and, and sometimes we do a course and then we do a follow up course, uh, you know, a few months later, and people will come to us and say, listen, just that one slide we had or the one thing that we talked about we implemented that and we were able to switch off uh, three pumps or five compressors or or, or stuff like that that happened really regularly um, and another thing i can say from as from a african perspective we had some training courses in various countries and a lot of time you know just to get ae certified they've enabled a lot of people to just improve their uh, either their job visibility or to get a job in the first place or just to be more valuable for their clients or for their employers. And especially I'm busy, actually today I'm busy here with a, a training course uh, for students in South Africa. And from our previous rounds, uh, some of these students that went through the program, you know, they, got, they got qualified just on a fundamental training course, first of all, then later on we go into CA and CM, then later on they get certified. And, you know, five years later you hear these guys, they were able to, you know, for the first time, you know, buy a house, buy a car, uh, you know, provide for their families. So it's sort of a knock-on snowball effect that you see years and years later. And I'm not saying it's, it's because I'm special or anything like that. It's really the training course or the, the, the subject of energy engineering, not only in industry, commercial as well. And just the attractiveness or the... Uh, yeah, the the potential of implementation and the amount of money that can be saved and you, you can save companies existence a lot of companies are on the edge of closing down uh, just by getting some projects implemented getting your foot in the door getting stuff running you can actually save companies and ultimately a lot of people's jobs sometimes you can save a whole town you know just by uh, looking at energy efficiency right yeah, and so I support what you're saying, Albert. Um, I look at it also as, let's say you've got your engineering degree and you're now the plant engineer or you're a facilities engineer or a manager at some company. It's really unfair to you to have never had any formal face-to-face, -face, uh, what I will call hands-on energy-specific training. In fact, it's kind of, um, you know, it, it makes for that too good to be true syndrome that Albert talked about. You know, Albert or I come around, point something out, and people think, well, we've got Bob here, and Bob's an engineer. Gee, Bob, why didn't you know about that? Because Bob never had an opportunity for face-to-face -face live training with somebody like Albert or I who've been doing this our whole lives. Uh, I've seen students come away with lots of confidence after one of these courses. They've got a broader perspective on opportunities they had never thought of before. Um, they get to hear about real life case studies. They network with other students who 
are in different industries who've actually implemented some of these other things. We give them access to a broad network of AEE professionals that are in really specific geeky areas of expertise. Um, I, for example, am for 40 years way deep into combustion systems and fired equipment. Um, there's other folks that are into financing energy projects like Dr. Woodruff. So um, there's just no other way for people to get access to these kinds of resources, this kind of knowledge, this kind of experience without actually coming to an AEE, AEE course. Well, thank you both for sharing your expertise today. Um, we really appreciate it. And one thing we like to do when we end the podcast, though, is because we are a professional organization, but we call ourselves a family, um, is just to ask a couple rapid fire round questions. So um, I just have three questions for you, and they're really quick. So tell me, what is your favorite summer activity? Albert. <laughs> uh, summer activity. Well, um, okay, so in Africa, we, we take a break for almost all December, all January. So a lot of people go to, to the beach. Um, I am a bushman myself. Uh, we just like going into nature, going to national parks, doing safaris, you know, bird watching, especially. Uh, me and my wife quite enjoy that. So anything outdoors, anything for me in a tent or on the ground sleeping next to a river or something like that just getting back to nature getting back to my roots i think uh, that's that's for me the favorite part of summer thanks so summer for me is car season i collect old mustangs uh, i go to car shows i go to drag races and uh, have fun with my vehicles Wow, that does sound fun. Both of those sound really great. Um, are you a morning or evening person? Uh, me? Uh, I would say I'm a morning person. I, yeah, I, I, I like to do some training, you know, uh, running and stuff like that. If I try to do that in the afternoon, it's too difficult. So, you know, if I wake up, I just have to do something and I, I feel quite uh, enthusiastic and uh, full of uh, dopamine early in the morning. So <laughs> I think I function better in the morning. I'm the same way, Albert. I'm typically up about 4 a.m. Eastern. Uh, have my first cup of coffee. I'm really productive, really productive from about four to five. And then it all sort of sort of levels off after that. <laughs> but I I love being up when no one else is up and it's just nothing but quiet. Uh, last question. Besides industrial energy, what are you passionate about? Um, okay, what am I passionate about? I think that's a that's a deep question. Uh, some of my hobbies, I would say, I like playing chess. I like uh, endurance events, running long distance ultra marathons and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, I think I enjoy that because I I, I like I like experimenting uh, to see what uh, sort of what your limits are or, or where you can go to. Uh, I'm not really a talented runner, but I like to. I like I like endurance events. Things that's that's a little bit difficult. I like I like challenges like that. Um, I, I think that's also why I like the energy topic, because it's it's so deep. Uh, you know, I like I like learning things in different areas and seeing where I can go in that subject or on that topic, and and see how far I can spread my wings 
um, and energy is such a deep field. So I, li I like trying different things and experimenting and seeing how far I can go. Um, so, so running and energy for me is quite frustrating sometimes because it's so difficult and it's very humbling, both of those disciplines. And you, you just realize how little you actually know and how bad you are in something. But at the same time, it's, it's nice to see progress and, and to grow. I would say to grow in something is sort of exhilarating for me to see myself getting better in something, even if it's just a little bit every day. Albert, I'm I'm with right with you there. There's kind of like the easy way out. You can keep doing things that, you know, are comfortable for you. And and I as well like to stretch out into things that are very awkward for me and I'm not very good at and are just almost seem completely impossible. So I do martial arts and I challenge myself with I'm working on a on a kata right now in Kempo that's almost like uh, 40 different moves all choreographed and I'm really bad at it and it's going to take me six months to a year to get through it but it gives me something it gives me a challenge so that I, I agree with you there it's fun to push yourself well, thank you both for coming on the podcast. This has been Full of Energy and AE Podcast. We'll see you next month.